This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. This episode of We Are Rivers is part two of our conversation with Brad Udall, which we featured in our last episode. In our last episode, we explored the science and made sure we all understand the various misconceptions around climate change and how to reevaluate those misconceptions. In this episode, we're going to further explore how climate change affects the Southwest's rivers in particular. And the American Southwest water is one of the main ways in which we see climate change. This is Brad Udall, a senior water and climate research scientist. He is described by the Colorado River Research Group as, quote, having an extensive background in water and climate policy issues, including as director of the Western Water Assessment of University of Colorado, as the first director of the Getchies Wilkinson Center for Natural Resources, Energy, and the Environment, and currently as the first senior water and climate research scientist and scholar at the Colorado Water Institute. He has written extensively on the impacts of climate change on water resources in the American West. And he was the lead author of the Water Sector Chapter of the Global Climate Change Impacts in the United States in 2009, a publication of the United States Global Change Research Program. One way to think about climate change is to just say climate change is water change. I've hinted about how the atmosphere is water holding capacity changes as it warms up, and it turns out that then ripples everywhere. There are also other aspects of the water cycle that influence especially snow-dominated basins such as we have in the American West. Most of us in the West know the general idea that as our climate warms, we'll see increased drought and punctuated events of damaging flooding. But what exactly is the science behind this understanding? What we're seeing, especially in the West right now, are temperature-induced flow reductions. So as it warms, evaporation goes up. You have higher temperatures on any given day. You have a longer season when plants are growing and it's warmer, so more days in which to evaporate. And that evaporation can apply to snow directly. It can apply to soils, water bodies. So you end up with what my co-author Jonathan Overpeck and I call temperature-induced flow loss, such as happening in in, in the Colorado River right now. You have earlier runoff because springs occur earlier. And so the biggest reservoir in the West, which is to say snowpack, all of a sudden gets reduced exactly at the time of year when it used to hang out and, and provide this nice long buffer to get us through the summer. As a consequence of that earlier runoff, you have lower water flows late in the year, and those low flows tend to be higher temperature, right, because there's less water in the system, and it's easier for the remaining water to heat up. I would argue in places in the American Southwest, you probably, if we don't have it, we're probably headed also to flashier systems. Dan Swain out of UCLA has a term, weather whiplash, that describes these rapid swings we seem to see some years where you, you know, get lots of snow in one year and then no snow in the next. So, so that's another impact. Drought may be the wrong word to describe what is going on in the Southwest. The effects of climate change aren't so temporary. The Southwest is likely experiencing aridification, not drought. 
Well, let me just say that in the last couple of years, scientists have begun to use this term aridification rather than drought. In the, in the case of the Colorado River, we have flows that are down close to 20% since the year 2000. And while we've had a few big years, and this year will be one of them, for the most part, these years we've experienced have seen uh, reduced, in some cases, vastly reduced flow volume. When you have a 20-year-long drought, you need to think about different terms to describe it, right? Because drought implies that you're going to return to normal at some point in time. And to the best of our knowledge, based on climate model output and climate physics, there's quite a good indication that the American Southwest will dry out as the 21st century warms. And where that dividing line is between wet and dry, we're not so sure, but it's clearly Arizona, New Mexico, and probably some portion of southern Colorado. Those are areas that I would argue, and I think other scientists would argue, are aridifying due to these higher temperatures and drier soils and, and less overall precipitation. But the changes that happen throughout the Southwest will vary depending on what rivers, communities, and cities rely on, and where these rivers have their headwaters. The Colorado River is this huge system that stretches from Wyoming all the way down to Mexico. And depending on where you are, different things might occur within that system. The, the Rio Grande, you know, another major American Southwest River, has its headwaters only barely into Colorado. And arguably, it's going to face different changes just because it's much further south and has a fairly small headwater basin, unlike the mainstem Colorado that, you know, has uh, tributaries that run into Colorado all the way to Continental Divide, Wyoming almost all the way up to Jackson, Wyoming, and, and Yellowstone, and tributaries that go into Utah. So it's all kind of regionally variable, and given the huge elevational differences in the basin from sea level to almost 14,000 feet, you're obviously going to see different kinds of impacts depending on exactly where you are. Overall, however, there will be continued aridification if we don't immediately step up and begin to really confront the policies and impacts around climate change and increased aridification. And increased aridification relates back to a topic that we covered in episode 13 of this series, wildfires. And that reduction in water also leads to more wildfire because it just gets drier, hotter sooner. And once fires get going, they, they burn longer and hotter. And you have more intense fires because we tend to have more vegetation. And that's not all climate change. That's a, in large part a history of fire prevention over the last hundred years. So we have this huge buildup of fuels. But we seem to be burning about twice as many acres as we would otherwise burn right now without climate change. And that's, again, a combination of these factors. But at the root cause, I would argue that, you know, the, the hot, high temperatures, reduced soil moisture, the dryness that some people have termed aridification of the American Southwest is to blame for these bigger, more intense, longer fire seasons we're now experiencing. So what does this all mean for those who live in the Southwest? What will we have to do? I think it's going to mean major challenges in how we operate this system because my operating premise now for almost a decade is that we're going to see lower flows out of this system. 
in 2017, I published a paper with Jonathan Overpeck called The Colorado River Hot Trout and Implications for the Future. And in that paper, we looked at the impacts of temperature on river flows. What we suggested was that currently the river's lost about 6% of its flow due to about a degree Celsius warming in the basin. And that by 2050, you could see a 20% reduction in flow. And by 2100, a 35% reduction in flow just due to temperature increases, um, assuming precipitation stays the same. We may see some precipitation increases in parts of the basin, and that could help to buffer some of those losses. But our sense was that we need to rethink how we manage this river given, given these what seem like an inevitable declines in flow. Um, the Colorado River is managed by these really complicated laws and treaties and Supreme Court decrees known collectively as the law of the river. And there's at least some idea that we need to rethink some of the major ways in which this system is operated. There's a wonderful opportunity to do this rethinking because in 2026, the current operational guidelines that were set in place in 2007 expire, and we're going to need to replace them with something. So almost already, there's actually an effort underway to rethink about how this management occurs. These negotiations need to start by 2020. There'll be a full environmental impact statement, and it'll be a very complicated, long, multi-year process. But it, at least it seems to me that we have the science to tell us that we need to make this system as resilient for, for humans and for nature as, as we possibly can make it. And we need to plan for a future that we can't fully foresee. Some of it we can see, but a bunch of it, we're not exactly sure how this plays out. It could be worse than, than what Overpeck and I have suggested. It could be better. But whatever it is, we just need to have rules in place that allow us to manage so that human systems and natural systems are damaged in the least possible way. So how can we pass policies that address climate change? What can the average person do to help enable this? The answer is, call your congressional representative every day and express your opinion. We have included a link to find your representative's number in the blog post associated with this episode. But what should you say to your congressional representative? And what can they actually do to address climate change? I mean, on the greenhouse gas mitigation side, people used to think, oh, all we need is the price on carbon, right? Because carbon emissions, methane, CO2, classic externality in that all of us get to pay the costs. And if you put a charge on it, you'll solve the problem. But what we need to do is actually more nuanced than this. You know, just in the last couple of years, I would argue, while there's been a lot of necessary focus on a, on a price on carbon, there's a lot more we can do. So let me let me walk us through what those things look like. So first off, price on carbon. You know, either cap and trade or some kind of carbon fee and dividend, some way to actually get at charging people for emitting carbon is one thing we need to do. But there's at least three other things. So. We need tax credits to help drive our markets and, and drive innovation. You know, there's been tax credits for solar installation, for electric vehicles. We need to continue to do those just because those tax credits actually help 
ultimately reduce the cost of these technologies as they scale up and people learn how to build things cheaper over time. Another tool in our toolbox are what are called renewable portfolio standards, and many states in, the, in America actually have these where they mandate that electric power suppliers, a certain percentage of their power with some form of either renewable or clean power, clean including nuclear, geothermal, other non-carbon emitting power. And those things have been remarkably effective in, in lots of states. We continue to need regulations, so regulations that drive mile per gallon standards in cars. And ultimately, we may need regulations that just force carbon-based fossil fuel industries to leave carbon in the ground. Nobody's much talking about that, but at some point we may have to get to that point in time. So at least four tools, a price on carbon, tax credits, renewable portfolio standards, and the final thing is regulations to help drive behavior where it needs to go. No one of them is suitable or, or will do the trick by itself. We need all four of those. An argument that sometimes pops up on social media is that yeah, okay, global warming is happening, but there's no viable alternative yet to energy sources that emit greenhouse gases because our technology just isn't there yet to foster renewables. This, however, is unfortunately propaganda. Well, that's not even remotely close to true, right? I mean, that's another reason over the last 10 years that you can have some hope. For years, Google worked on this project called Renewable Energy Less Than Coal, and what they meant by that, they were trying to get renewable energy below the price of coal, and they ultimately gave up in the late, early 2000s. Well, that stays here, right? I mean, coal-fired power plants are closing in large numbers right now because they're getting killed economically by both wind and solar. So we have the technologies at the right prices to get where we need to go for the most part. I mean, there are a few pieces, you know, that remain, like, still trying to get the price of electric vehicle batteries down. And we really need a better battery for storing electrical energy. The lithium-ion cells we have now work pretty well, but a breakthrough would be in batteries because it would change all kinds of things. We need some newer technologies for long-distance air transport. There's nothing even remotely close to what's called the fuel density of jet fuel. But I'm hopeful that those technologies, we will find those technologies. And, you know, like any huge problem, you never have all the answers when you set up to solve it. I'd argue we have about 80% of the technology at the right cost we need to solve this problem. And because it's a multi-decadal problem, we have plenty of time to figure the technologies out so long as we invest money in them, which we're not doing enough of right now. In other words, just because we don't have all the technology to replace every type of biofuel, doesn't mean that we shouldn't start implementing the types of renewable energies we do have. Renewable energy sources can replace many of the traditional energy sources we rely on. Furthermore, different geographical regions will implement different types of energy generating sources that best fit the area. Solar panels and wind turbines work better in some places more than others. It's not about finding the ultimate broad-based technology, it's about being area-specific. This diversification in the energy grid would actually make the U.S. less susceptible to energy-related terrorist threats or other kinds of attacks. The more diverse and distributed a system is, 
the more resilient it can be. This is a common fact of complex systems. With a renewable energy grid, it is undeniable that national security would be more secure. The two biggest industries that show a deep understanding of the need to be implementing renewable energies are insurance companies and the military. As is noted in a 2017 Reuters article, quote, President Donald Trump and his top advisors have often scoffed at governmental support of green energy. His chief strategist called it madness. But the largest U.S. government agency, the Department of Defense, plans to forge ahead under the new administration with a decade-long effort to convert its fuel-hungry operations to renewable power, senior military officials told Reuters, end quote. Brad agrees that investing in renewables would help boost our national security. And, in the end, implementing renewable energy strategies offers a promising market for new investments and potentially massive growth. It is time to disrupt the status quo, take subsidies off of oil and gas, and pave the way to a secure, profitable, and healthy future. I mean, ultimately, this is a test of our political system and how it responds to a crisis. I see most of the issue here is one of will rather than one of technology or one of knowledge. And I suppose maybe that should give me some hope because the the pieces are in place to get done what we need. At this point, it's just a matter of will. And that can change pretty quickly if people want. I mean, I do see, see well many people working on this every day. I see young people getting more and more engaged, but frankly, they need to they need to be a lot more engaged than they are right now. Their voting turnout is about half of people uh, older than 60, and yet it's their interests that are most at risk of being hurt here. I mean, one has to be hopeful, right? But you also have to be realistic about the nature of the challenge. People have got to educate themselves. they got to participate by voting. You can't depress people into action. So... I, I try to maintain some hope. Just last week, a thousand people got arrested in London on exactly this topic. And we're now seeing changes the likes of which three or four years ago I would have never envisioned in our political system around this topic. So, I mean, there is hope. It's, it's frustrating if you've worked in it for 15 plus years the way I have and seen report after report exactly the same thing which is, it's warming, we're causing it, it's serious, experts are certain, and we can fix it. Those five points, and yet we haven't done anything about it. So we have a combination of hope and, and also dismay with where we are. The impacts of climate change will affect all corners of the globe and places like the Southwest and the Colorado River Basin will experience more droughts, fire, and possible aridification. Variability in the impacts of climate change will only intensify as times move forward and we must be prepared. How we as a global community decide to tackle climate change, including improving community resilience to droughts, floods, and other climate impacts, bolstering collaborative and sustainable water management and mitigating the impacts of climate change by reducing greenhouse gases will change our future, either for the worse or for the better. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. 
Tune in to our next episode to continue the conversations around river conservation. And if you learned something new in this piece or enjoy the series, please write and comment. This helps others discover our podcast series too, and we really do appreciate your support. Thank you.